I'll invite you to turn, if you'd like, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll read verses uh, 19 down through uh, 28, actually, is all the farther we're going to get. And uh, if I were to entitle this, I'd entitle the sermon, Who Are You? Uh, the Servants of God. That's who we are. That's the emphasis here. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at um, who is Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God. So John chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through 28. Before we read him and look at him, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've given us this uh, uh, vivid picture of John the Baptist, what he came to do, who he was. And we ask that uh, you would uh, teach us uh, stuff that we don't know or that we need to be reminded of. And we also pray that you'll teach us uh, who we are in light of what we look at, which will remind us who we belong to in Jesus Christ and what it is that we're called to do because we belong to you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, uh, John 1 at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent uh, from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not unworthy to untie. I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So thus far, the reading of God's word. May He bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of Hope and everyone with us here this morning, there was uh, something big going on about 15 to 20 miles east of Jerusalem uh, in the Jordan River. Uh, it was the event was John the Baptist showing up to the scene. Uh, one writer compared this to the coming of the Beatles, uh, an American writer writing uh, in the 70s. Uh, if you were alive, you would have known about it. So if you had a, a beating heart in the days of John the Baptist, you would have known that something big is happening out there uh, at the Jordan River. John is such a, a great figure. We're told actually in Mark 1.5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan. This doesn't mean every person, but it does mean crowds. Think hundreds, think thousands of people going out to see John the Baptist. Uh, this guy was uh, dressed in camel's hair. He wore a leather belt, uh, rather uncomfortable uh, style of clothing. He ate locusts, wild honey for his meals, which is not a king's food. He was preaching and baptizing out in the sticks. He was not doing this in Jerusalem. He didn't say, hey, let's build a big pond right here in the middle of town and we'll take care of this stuff. He went out to the river where there was plenty of water to do his work. And by all accounts, he was just rough around the edges. Uh, he himself was rough and he had a message that was uh, for many people disturbing or it, it definitely caught their attention. Uh, here's uh, some of what he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It takes steel in your spine to say that. <laughs> uh, do not presume to save yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from the stones even to raise up children from Abraham. So uh, John uh, uh, dared preach and teach 
to the scribes and the Pharisees when they came out to him that it doesn't matter if you're a religious uh, expert, if you're a pastor, if you're a, a Bible teacher, if you're a, a clergy person, it doesn't matter if you're part of the religious elite. Uh, the only thing that matters is that you know Jesus Christ. You can be part of the religious establishment and not be saved. Again, uh, John was a rugged individual who had a rugged message about the kingdom of God. And uh, Luke has the audacity to say that when he was telling people these hard things, that was part of the gospel. He said he preached these things and also the gospel um, to those who were coming uh, to him. Anyone who would have looked at John would have said, uh, maybe lighten up. If we had uh, you know, a pastors today, we might have said the message is just too harsh. You got to tone it down. But that wasn't what God called John to do. And he certainly didn't tone it down. What I want us to do as we walk through this uh, short account of uh, the beginning of his ministry is with no fancy outline, just start at the beginning, kind of walk through every verse, noticing first that John was a witness. If you take a look at verse 19, this is the testimony or the witness of John. And then if you look at the end of uh, uh, verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we have uh, really bookends, verses 19 to 34, kind of one big section we're dividing up into two. But it has to do with uh, John the Baptist as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, witness, think courtroom testimony. Think uh, some things on trial. The Lord Jesus is on trial and what's being brought in or who are being brought in are witness after witness after witness to prove that actually he is indeed the Christ. The trial is, is Jesus the one we're supposed to look for? Is he the Christ? Is he the hope of the world? Is he the one that we should believe in? If we believe in him, do we have eternal life? That's the issue. That's the question, the biggest question in all the world. And so John the apostle is assembling all these witnesses, several of them, to prove that, yes, here's another faithful witness that will tell you, indeed, he is the Christ you should believe uh, in him. Uh, and John, uh, something else interesting about John is that he wasn't just uh, a witness. He was also uh, one who was baptizing. And he wasn't just baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism called proselytes, which that wouldn't have upended the, the religious apple cart at all. He was actually baptizing Jews too. He was baptized, and, and if you're a religious authority, for you, the way to be saved is to be a Jew. You just be a Jew and you follow the law the best you can. You don't need a baptism of repentance. You don't, you don't need to go through all this, this uh, cleansing of sorts. You just have to be a Jew and follow the law and the good deeds will outweigh the bad deeds in God's scale. So when John the Baptist came baptizing not just Gentiles, but Jews as well, this was quite an offense. This would have caused a bit of a stir. It's why they were coming out to see who are you? <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And so uh, more on that in just a bit when John answers those questions. But, but what we're being told here right from the start is that the kingdom of God has only one entrance, only one way into it. It's repentance and faith. That's it. It doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter our religious pedigree. It doesn't matter if we had Christian parents or if we didn't know about Jesus until we hit 40 years old. The entrance into the kingdom of God uh, is just one. That's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Repenting of our sins and trusting in him. And John's baptism was a testimony to that. Again, it's why people, it's why the Jews were being, the, the religious Jews, the, uh, the religious elites were very upset by the ministry of John the Baptist. Something else to notice is that uh, John's gospel ministry was causing so much of a stir that the religious elites were shaken up 
they were they were taken aback by who John the Baptist was, so much so that they sent a delegation. Well, the Pharisees didn't go themselves. Some have seen this as kind of a slight, uh, like you, you're, he's not really personally worth my time, so I'm going to send some others. But we know from other passages that the Pharisees also themselves went out too. Uh, so I, I think they're just sending out a delegation of priests and Levites to find out indeed who John the Baptist is because they were so shaken up uh, by what he was doing. And I want to just remind us that uh, John's ministry was tested by the religious elites. Uh, he wanted, they wanted to know who he was. They were skeptical of him. And whenever there's a faithful gospel ministry, there will always be upended, not just the world around us, but also religious elites, I'll, I'll, I'll call them, people who believe that the way to be saved is to obey God and order your life in such a way externally that everybody sells, says there's a, religious, uh, there's a religious man, there's a religious woman. Why weren't they godly? Look at how holy they are. That will always uh, turn their world upside down. They won't be able to sit well with what's taking place. When sinners come into the kingdom, when everybody is humbled, when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ, when everybody's told we need to repent, some people don't believe they need to repent in order to be saved. And those people uh, will always be rocked when someone like John the Baptist uh, shows up. So they come to him, verse 19, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not uh, the Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever been dressed really shabbily <laughs> and had like John the Baptist was, and had people from uh, Jerusalem, a high society, uh, priests and Levites who were probably dressed pretty well, come and ask you to give an account of yourself. Uh, you can uh, envision uh, maybe uh, uh, a job interview where you walk in in your um, uh, surfer shorts and your cutoff t-shirt and you're sitting across the desk from somebody who says, who are you, who's wearing a suit? But this could have been a very intimidating time for John. This could have been very intimidating. Here he is, some, uh, some almost redneck looking person out in the backwoods uh, preaching this, uh, this, this gospel that is really hard to swallow and he doesn't look the part of a religious person at all. And then he's being questioned by people who are in charge and in authority. Uh, what, I, what we notice about John is that he, he's not someone who has, who has to prove anything. He's secure in his identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's secure in what God's called him to do. He's just fine if people don't like it. He is absolutely secure in who he is in Christ. He knows who he is, and he also knows what God's called him to do. And he doesn't care if people uh, don't like that. And so he says right from the get-go, look, I'm not the Christ. He wants to make this very clear. Now, Christ in the Greek is, the, is a translation or transliteration of the Hebrew word uh, for Messiah uh, all throughout the Old Testament. So the Messiah was someone that the Jews looked forward to, the Christ, the, the, the anointed one, the one that would come and the, the hope of Israel, the consolation of Israel. So people were always wondering, when's the Messiah going to come? When will the Christ show up? When, when will our deliverer show up? He's the one who would rescue them from uh, a political bondage, from social bondage. That's what they thought. And so they're asking John, one of the questions he must have asked him is, are you the Christ? And he wanted to make this very clear. Look, I'm not, I'm not your hope. I'm not the issue. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one that you need to look uh, uh, toward uh, for redemption. Uh, and then uh, they, they also ask him, uh, what then are you Elijah? And he said, verse 21, I am not 
Now, this may seem like an odd question at first. Why are they asking him if he's Elijah? Well, to begin with, he actually looked a lot like Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. So there's some visible similarities between John the Baptist and Elijah. Also, Elijah was not afraid of confronting people. He confronted the prophets of Baal. He would confront kings and call them to the mat. So John the Baptist had the ferve and the zeal and the, 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 the confrontationalness of uh, Elijah. And then furthermore, in Malachi 4.5, we're told, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Jews were rightly waiting for Elijah to show up because God said he would. And it only made sense that John might be Elijah. And John says, no, I'm not Elijah either. On the surface, this seems to contradict what Jesus and the angels said. You remember in Matthew 11, Jesus said, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus says, yep, John the Baptist is Elijah. And remember uh, Luke 1.17 uh, the angel said, John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So it seems like the angel is saying that John is indeed Elijah. And John's saying, nope, uh, that's not uh, the case. But indeed, there is no contradiction. Uh, what uh, many, uh, a couple things stand out or a couple ways of looking at this stand out. The Jews expected a literal, physical reappearance of Elijah. So much so that when they celebrated the Passover, it was customary to leave an open spot at the table, to leave an open seat in case Elijah would appear. So uh, John, with this understanding, being a Jew, would have understood, being, his father was a priest, uh, he would have understood that they're looking for the literal, physical Elijah. And so when they ask you, are you Elijah, like Elijah reappearing, he left in chariots of fire, uh, are you him just coming back down? John said no, meaning I am not literally Elijah. But also, a couple other commentators suggested that John's humility might have prevented him from making the association that Jesus made between him and Elijah. In other words, John had such a low view of himself, an accurate view of himself, that when they asked you, look, are you Elijah? He's thinking, Elijah, this, he's an incredible prophet. Elijah was an amazing prophet in the Old Testament. No, I'm not, I'm not on scale with him, not at all. No, I am not Elijah. That is not my ministry. That is not where I am, because John... I believe that Christ must increase and John the Baptist must decrease and go away. And then they asked him again, I'm not, are you the prophet? Verse 21, and he answered, no. So again, this is a reference from Deuteronomy 18:15. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the Jews are rightly waiting, not just for Elijah, but also for a prophet. And so they're, they're coming to him asking, look, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. And finally, they're, they're out of ideas. Look, thousands of people are coming to John the Baptist. He's preaching a message of repentance. He's baptizing. He is stirring up the waters. There is something amazing going on, something huge going on, bigger than can be explained just by, just by uh, human means. So they're thinking God must be doing something big here. So who are you? So then in one last ditch effort, almost, almost out of desperation, I don't know if you can hear the frustration in their voices, but they're, so the, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? We can't go back home empty. You, you have to give us something, John. You've told us, no, no, no. <laughs> so positively, tell us who you are. Give us something that we can take back to the Pharisees. And so 
He gives them this quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, John's view of himself, I'm just a voice. And the voice of one crying out to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for kings, and certainly prior to his day, for when kings were going to come into town, they would send a delegation ahead of them, or at least a couple of messengers, to say, hey, get this town ready. King's coming. Caesar's coming. Somebody important is coming to town. We, now, if we're in Pella, we have the equivalent of it, but you're actually the two-up time steering committee, right? I don't know all the details of what they do, but part of the details is getting the town ready because the, the king, the tourists, are coming into town, and we need to get all the potholes filled. We need to get the lawns mowed. We need to make sure all the tulip beds are looking really good, right? And, and the town, we need to clean up the construction mess. If you've ever been on construction sites, some of them, like, it has to be looking decent or some, some uh, uh, construction sites aren't even started until after tulip time because tourists are coming in. That's what John the Baptist says he's doing. He's just preparing the way. He's not the issue. He's not the king. He's just making the way straight so when the king comes into town, the people are ready to welcome the king. So what we see from John the Baptist first uh, is, when uh, I want to pause here, is just this great humility, an understanding of, his, of who he is. Uh, imagine the opportunities he had to boast about himself. Are you Elijah? Well, we got a lot of similarities. Are you the prophet? I, got a, I have no problem saying what comes to mind. God gives me a word to speak. I'll say it straight up. Are you the Christ? Well, I'm, I'm chosen. I've been anointed to do some stuff. Instead, are you the Christ? Nope. Don't want, and he denied it over and over. It's like, it's like when they asked him, are you the Christ? Or they were even thinking that in their minds. They said, I don't want you to even come close to thinking that again. Don't ask me that question again. That's off the table. No, absolutely not. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? No. <laughs> he wanted to make it very clear who he was because he was secure in his own skin. Leon Morris said this about John the Baptist, Jesus confers on John his true significance. No man is what he thinks himself he is. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. And John had accepted that. John knows who Jesus says I am, and that's enough. Doesn't matter what I think I am. Doesn't matter what others think I might be. Jesus knows what I am, and he's told me who I am. And that's enough for John the Baptist. He didn't have to go around pretending to be someone who he was, was not. And then W.A. Criswell, he's a 20th century American Baptist pastor, commenting on this, said something I think is really helpful as, as he transitions from John the Baptist to us. He says, in a day when individualism, competition, and success are the guiding principles for life, for work, and even for Christian ministry, we would do well to reflect on the spirit of humility so evident in the life of John the Baptist. To say it from Proverbs 27 2, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. John the Baptist wasn't going to go around tooting his horn, even though Jesus says, look, he's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. There's no one greater than John. He could have done a lot to toot his own horn and people would have listened, but he didn't. Beloved, how is that with you and I? I just pause briefly for 10 seconds here. Who are you? Are you content with it? Who you are in Christ? God has made each of us uh, unique. He's put us in his son. We're saved. Are you okay with that? Who you are in Christ? And what has God given you to do? 
We'll close with this too. I just want to allude to it. What has God given you and I to do? Are you content with it? Are we at peace with the calling that God has given us to do? And are we doing it with humility? Not trying to make a big name for ourselves, but just content to serve God, die, and be forgotten. To serve Him well, to look forward to heaven, to die, to be forgotten, and to go be with our Savior. So then uh, verses 25 to 27, uh, they asked Him. So they, they understand, okay, He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We are looking for a Bible passage. It's not Deuteronomy 18. It's not Malachi 4. It's Isaiah 40. That describes John. Okay, here we, here we go. And then, but then they go farther. They say, all right, now we know who you are. What in the world do you think you're doing? If you're not Elijah, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing if you're not any of those? Verse 25. What, by what authority can you do these things? If you're just a voice, if you're just the one who's preparing the way for the Lord, then why are you doing this? And their mindset was all about, you know, authority, jurisdiction, who's in charge. We're the ones in charge. It seems like you're competing with our ministry. Again, they didn't like this. So they're saying almost by what authority are you doing this stuff? You're not, you're not anyone that we would acknowledge as an authority. So how can you be doing this stuff? And John doesn't even answer their question. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not unworthy to untie. I'm not worthy to untie. In John's mind, he is a nothing, and nothings and nobodies shouldn't spend their time defending their nobodiness. All John can do is just refer again to how lowly he is and how exalted is the one that he's pointing to, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they're asking, why are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things? We don't think you have enough authority. You're not Elijah the Christ, the prophet. Why are you doing this stuff? He doesn't even care to answer that. Let me, he's, he's saying, let me paraphrase. Let me tell you how lowly I am, you priests and Levites. The one that I'm pointing to, which is all I'm here to do, the one that I'm pointing to is so great. I don't even deserve to untie his sandal strap. So why are we talking about me? Why are we talking about my ministry? Why are we talking about who we are? The one that's coming is so great. He, he deserves to have all of our attention. That's all I exist to do. I was born to point to Jesus and then I die. That's it. That's all John is saying. My calling, my existence is just to point to Jesus. So I'm not going to even spend 30 seconds pointing to myself. Are you Elijah? No. The prophet? No. The Christ? No. Uh-uh. Very briefly. Well, why do you baptize? Uh, next. Jesus is coming. I'm going to point to him. That is the sole reason for John's existence, and he knows it. In other words, John is saying, uh, when, he, when he responds in verse 26, he's saying, look, this is all about grace. That's who I am. Why are you baptizing? It's all about grace. Let me, say, let me uh, mention why I say this. In this day, sandals were full of all kinds of things, right? Sewer systems were not what they are today. They didn't have big pipes that carried things to a sewage treatment plant that treated it and then had this you know, great clean water that you know, we could think about drinking again or pump back into rivers. Uh, so human fluids and solids could be in uh, uh, various places that you might step on. And for sure, animal fluids and solids were in places that you would step on. They were right along the path, right? So that's what you walk in. You're walking in sandals. Your sandals meet those fluids and solids and they start to stink. They're gross. They have everything that you would probably don't want to think about on the bottom of them. So when you came into someone's house, and for sure when you sat down for a meal, uh, the shoes would come off. And if you didn't take your own shoes off, 
then a slave would take off a shoe. They would untie your sandals, as it were. They would take those things off so that things wouldn't have to be dirty, especially around where you're eating. And so John is saying, I'm not even worthy to be considered a slave of the one that I point to. Look, there's someone coming after me. I'm not even worthy to be a slave. If he sat at the table with dirty shoes, I, I wouldn't even be on the list of people high enough to be able to take those shoes off. That's who I am. That, that, that's what I amount to uh, by nature. That, that's who I am. Uh, that's, that's the worth I have. And so John is saying, I'm less than a slave. And in doing so, he's speaking to us of God's grace. Why do I say he's speaking to us of God's grace? Because slaves were the working class people of Jesus' day, and slaves were worthy to untie the sandal straps of people. Slaves were worthy to do that work. Slaves belonged to a master, and slaves, and slaves were worthy to do the work that the master gave them. And one of the pieces of work a master would often give a slave is to take somebody's shoes off, to wash them, to wash their feet, etc. So John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. And yet he sits there as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm not worthy to belong to Jesus. I'm not worthy of even doing the lowliest task of Jesus' kingdom. That's who I am. So then, John, why do you belong to Jesus if, if, if you're not worthy? Why do we belong to Jesus if we're not worthy? How did it come to pass that John got to do this exalted work of God in his kingdom? Again, it's God's grace. John knew that he was not worthy to belong to God, even as a slave, and he knew that the exalted work the Lord had given him to do, he wasn't worthy to do. So it was purely God's grace, uh, God's grace extended to him that allowed him to do what he's doing and be in the position he's in. And think about this for a moment. John's of priestly descent. What makes John's comment so uh, 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 more astonishing is that his dad is a priest. Uh, he's of priestly descent. The priests and Levites are coming to him, and if he wanted to be, he could have been standing in their shoes. But that's not his role. That's not what God gave him to do. And so when they come to him and he puts himself far lower than them, far lower than the Lord Jesus Christ, he just says, look, I'm just a fly on the wall. I point to Jesus, leave me alone. He's doing this as someone who could all invoke, hey, my dad is a priest. I'm no different than you are. Why don't you go home and just go bother someone else? But again, he's humble. He knows what he's called to do and he doesn't invoke his priestly privilege. There's not a single one of us here today that is worthy of belonging to Jesus. Not a single one of us. To be a slave is to belong to somebody and is to have the privilege of working for that person. Those two things. Not a single one of us is worthy to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to belong to him and to do his work. Not a one of us. Yet we're called slaves of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.22, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. 1 Corinthians 7.22, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. And then Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his slave or his servant, John. And Paul refers to himself over and over and over again, a lot of, a lot of times at the beginning of his letters, as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're not worthy to be slaves of Christ like John wasn't, and yet we've been given this exalted status of being a slave of Jesus Christ, 
and be given the privilege of doing his work, that means God must have extended us grace. But there's not a single person here or anywhere on the planet that is worthy even to be God's slave. But God has made us worthy. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world as a slave, as actually to stand in our place as a slave. He enslaved himself to what? Us, our problem. He became a slave of the law of God, right? The law of God stood over us and condemned us. It said, you're not measuring up, you're finished. And so Christ came under the law to redeem us from it. He enslaved himself to the law, which is what he's doing all 33 years of his life. The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus does it every second of the day. He enslaved himself to loving other people as he loves himself. He did it perfectly. The law says you shouldn't steal. Jesus, far from that, doesn't steal, but he gives. The law says don't covet. Far from that, Jesus actually uh, helps people uh, thrive and flourish. The law says a lot of things, and Jesus fulfilled it all. He enslaved himself to obeying the law so that we could receive his righteousness. And then finally, at the end of his life, he enslaved himself to our condition, to being punished before God. We deserve to be punished. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to the devil. We're enslaved to death. Death is going to win unless we have somebody who comes down here and destroys destroys death, destroys the one who has power over death, and and ends victorious over death. So Jesus Christ came down here and enslaved himself, put himself on the hook for our debt, paid the whole thing. And now we can become slaves of God. Now we have that status of being slaves of God and are given the privilege of doing his work, working for God. So beloved, we belong to God now. God in his grace has done this for us. Jesus Christ came to yoke himself to the most difficult thing there is on the planet, facing his father's wrath against our sin facing his father's wrath for our problems. We pick the fight, Jesus pays the fight. We have all the problems, we commit the iniquity, we commit the sin, and punishment comes down not on our head, but on his head. That's what Jesus Christ enslaved himself to. And now we have the opportunity, the privilege of being God's slaves. This means we belong to God. Every single Christian here, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to God. And this is what John the Baptist knew. Who are you? I'm not, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah. Who are you? Who am I? We're not the Christ. We're not the, people might, we're not the folks that people might want to think we are. We're not as big as we might like to think we are. Who are we? We're just witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We just belong to him. We're Christians. We're those that God has saved. That's who we are. We're sons of God. We're daughters of God. We're people who've been brought from death to life. We're people who have an inheritance that's coming our way. We're people who have a mission in this world after we've been saved to live for God, to glorify Him, and to fulfill His purpose for our life. Each of us have different purposes. That's who we are. We belong to God. We're His sons and daughters. And nothing will change that, beloved. Nothing. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Do I understand it? That that's who we are. No matter, you know, everybody in our life is going to try and pigeonhole us who you are. Well, I'm I'm uh, European. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm French. I'm Swiss. I'm German. I'm Dutch. Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm rich or I'm poor. We can be defined by our vocations. Who are you? Well, I'm, a, I'm an accountant or I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a construction worker. I'm an engineer. Who are you? There's a thousand ways to classify ourselves, beloved. But at the end of the day, 
What John the Baptist understood and what we need to understand about ourselves is that we're Christians. We're bought by the blood of the Lamb. We belong to God. We're His slaves by His grace. And given that, then, we have a job to do. We're working for God. Slaves don't just belong. Slaves put out. Slaves don't just have the privilege. We have the privilege of belonging in God's household. And then he says, look, I'm going to turn you around. and I'm going to let you see all the stuff that I have for you to do. And I want you to go do it joyfully. I want you to be so enamored by the grace I've given to you. So excited by the fact that I've redeemed you. I want you to be so uh, overwhelmed by the grace I've shown you in my son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for you, taking all the blows so you never have to take them. I want you to be so excited about that, 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 that when I send you out, you'll go out and you'll serve me and you'll glorify me for the rest of your life. So, look, we can have a couple of different viewpoints of our work, of our callings. None of us are John the Baptist. That's not our calling, right? But we all have callings. So we can look at our work as a drudgery, as a calling that's miserable, we can look at our jobs, the people in our lives that we're called to love, the ways that we're called to worship God. We can look at all of that as a drudgery and as a misery that we have to fulfill just because we're God's slaves. Thanks, Lord. That's a way we can look at it. And if you're like me, sometimes, sadly enough, that might be the way you actually look at it. I hope that's not the case. I know it's the case with me. Or we can humble ourselves, by the way, that's often due out of pride. How dare God give me this kind of meaningless, one-sided work that doesn't receive any glory. Thanks, God. I guess I'll do it. Pride. I deserve better. I should have more exalted work. My work should be paraded around for all the journalists to see and write about and report about all around the world. Pride. Or we can have the view of John the Baptist. We can humble ourselves with the reality that we are not even worthy to be God's slaves in doing His work. If God has called you and I to be His and given us work to do, then that's a privilege. Beloved, we have the privilege of doing various things. We're not worthy to be witnesses of Christ in our vocations. None of us are. But God said, you're mine. Go and be my witnesses now. Just go, just go live a godly life. Live humbly. When you fail, admit it and tell others about me. That's it. Just go do that. What a privilege, beloved. What a privilege to belong to Him and to be able to tell others, yeah, I'm... I am just an object of grace. That's all I am. And you could be too. We're not worthy to live upon this earth and serve our fellow human beings with good deeds in the name of Christ. We're not worthy to bear the name of Christ and to go out and say, the reason I'm serving you and loving you is because of what God's done for me. But God's given us that tremendous calling. What a privilege. We're not worthy to love our spouses and our family members, to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're not worthy of any of these things, beloved. And yet God says, look, this is the work I've given you to do. Well, but everything that we have been given to put our hand to the plow of is a privilege given us from God. We're not worthy to grow in holiness and to grow in humility. And yet God says, look, that's the work I've given you to do. Grow in these things. So what a privilege it is to be God's slave, to belong to him, to work for him. It should be our delight. And if it's not, then maybe we have too much pride. If it is, we're, we're probably finding ourselves in a humble spot like John the Baptist found himself. So who are you? Who am I in conclusion? By nature, we're people who aren't even worthy to be God's slaves and to do his work. But by God's grace, we are worthy to be his on account of Jesus Christ and to be busy with his work. Don't forget this when we're tempted to make much of ourselves, even asked to by others. 
You and I are nothings and nobodies by nature. Whatever we might be is entirely due to the grace of God in our lives. Every one of us will face temptations to exalt ourselves, to make much of ourselves. And what John the Baptist is teaching us is, no, we're actually nobody. We exist to point to Christ. We exist to be witnesses of Christ, to just do our work and to die and to go away. And then as a form of encouragement in closing, don't forget that we belong to God and that he loves us and that he's given us great work to do. Don't forget this when the despair of work and life kicks in, because sometimes it will. Sometimes it'll be tempting to be, yeah, I really am less than nothing. Wow, that's discouraging. <laughs> Why do I even want to get up in the morning? Don't forget that the nothing work that you're doing and the nothing person that you and I are is someone who belongs to God and who's laboring for the king. He knows who we are. He will resurrect us when he comes again. And he sees the work we're doing, just like he saw John the Baptist. Let's pray.